Well, this morning, um, I'm going to continue leading us through a series of messages entitled Master Leader. And what we're doing, uh, just really a a four-week chunk of the summer, is we're looking at different attributes that have the capacity to make us great leaders. Church, I am convinced, more than anything, that all leadership really is, is influence. And every person, regardless of age, regardless of their station in life, has some varying degree of influence other, over other people and therefore are leaders. The driving question is, are you a good leader or a bad leader? Do you make people bitter with your influence or do you make people better? I tell my children all the time that I expect them to be strong leaders amongst their peer groups. Like any typical dad, you know, you give your kids life lessons. Most of my life lessons with my kids are around leadership. And I tell them all the time, look, as strong leaders amongst your peer groups, your job is to pull people up to your level, not push people down. So we are in this series, what does it take to be a master leader? Well, we have to look to Jesus as our example. Paul says to be imitators of Christ. And, and we look to him as we try to cultivate attributes that can make us great leaders as well. And where we started last week is we looked at the attribute of humility. Great leaders, master leaders, are those who exhibit a certain degree of humility. Uh, We see that lived out in Jesus from the very start. Uh, Paul tells us in Philippians 2, reciting an old hymn of the church, that Christ, though in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited or used to his advantage. Instead, he humbled himself, became a human being, took on flesh, right? Went to a cross, died for our sins, for our benefit, so we could be reconciled back with our Creator God. So Jesus is really the the quintessential um, example of humility. Well, today we're going to look at the attribute of mentorship. So if you were to look in the Bible, what most leaders have in common is that they all had someone that went before them and poured into them to make them solid leaders. Uh, Let's think of a few examples. They're in your bulletin notes. Uh, Joshua had Moses, right? Uh, Samuel had Eli. David had Saul. Uh, Elisha had Elijah. Paul had Barnabas. Timothy had Paul. Now, regarding mentorship in the context of the church, what I want to talk about specifically today is discipleship. Friends, what I have come to believe more than anything else is that Jesus Christ desires for all people to be in relationship with him, to be his disciples. But it's not supposed to end there. We are called to be disciples who then go out to make more disciples. In fact, the vibrancy and the future of the church is contingent on our willingness to be disciples who make disciples. Again, we see this all throughout the scriptures. Although this morning we're going to look at a specific text out of 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2. 2 Timothy is what we believe to be the last written words of the Apostle Paul before he was martyred for his faith in Jesus Christ. And in being so close to death, honestly, Paul left us, the church, a gift in this letter. And why I say that is if you've ever been around people who have died, Uh, you know that mostly uh, there's pressing issues on their mind as they're passing. And usually those pressing issues are the most important issues for that person who's getting ready to pass. Now for Paul, in part, the most pressing issue on his mind, according to this last letter he wrote, was passing the baton of faith to the next generation. 
I, I love how eloquently he writes here. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, really it's the Holy Spirit working through the personality and the pen of the Apostle Paul. But this is what the Lord has to share with us this day. It says, You then, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me through many witnesses, now entrust to other faithful people who will be able to teach others as well. Share in the suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving in an army gets entangled in everyday affairs. The soldier's aim is to please the enlisting officer. Our enlisting officer is Jesus Christ. Amen? Our goal, our aim in life should be to please that enlisting officer. But I digress. Verse 5. And in the case of an athlete, no one is crowned without competing according to the rules. In the Greek games back then in ancient times... When, if you wanted to compete in the, the Olympics, you had to sign a waiver that you had trained for that race or, or that competition for the past 10 months. And that, that's what Paul's kind of uh, referencing there. To, to pe- a, an athlete must uh, compete according to the rules. Verse 6, it is the farmer who does the work who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in all things. Let me recite again verse 2, which is our memory verse for this week. Paul says, and what you have heard from me through many witnesses, I now entrust, or now entrust to faithful people who will be able to teach others as well. This is God's word for God's people. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you so much uh, for your life-giving word, uh, the Bible. And I ask, Lord, in the midst of the next few moments, as, as I offer reflection on your life-giving word, that you would just bless the words of my lips, the meditation of all our hearts, that they be of profit to us and acceptable to you, for you indeed are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, in the 17th century, there was a man by the name of Dr. Uh, Richard Sibbs who wrote a book on Christ called A Bruised Reed. Now, that book fell into the hands of a man peddling tin who just happenstance would have it. He, he gave that book to a young boy named Richard Baxter. Richard Baxter read that book. It inspired his life, became a Christian, turned out to be one of the greatest Puritan preachers of his day. Well, Baxter eventually authored another book entitled A A Call to the Unconverted, which fell into the hands of a guy named Philip Doddridge, who felt so convicted and inspired by that book that he wrote his own book on Christ called The Rise and Progress of the Religion and the Soul. Now, I bring this up because William Wilberforce read that book. And that book so changed his life that he led the fight against eradicating slavery. He fought against the institution of that vile wickedness. Uh, William Wilberforce was described as a tiny, stunted man, but whose eloquence of tongue for Christ was so impressive that it kind of, uh, his physical stature went unnoticed. Wilberforce became such a huge influence in Britain culture in the 19th century that three days before his death, he saw the end of slavery in Europe. Why do I bring this up? What would have come of Wilberforce if a guy named Dr. Richard Sibbs didn't write a book about Christ 150 years before? Friends, something that has been lost, I think, in mainline American denominations is a singular focus on making disciples. If the church is about anything, hear me, it is about discipleship. Well, we see this reality from the mouth of Jesus himself. Matthew 28, 
Jesus has since uh, died for the sins of humanity, resurrected from the dead three days later, and then spent 40 days ministering, teaching, and serving alongside of his disciples. Gets them up on the hillside up in Galilee and leaves them with one more charge. Matthew 28. He says to them before he ascends back to his throne in heaven, Go! Go and make disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. What Jesus is saying to his disciples 2,000 years ago, what he is saying to us today is that wherever we go, we are to make disciples of him. Whether it's in our home, our workplace, our school, our community to the ends of the earth. Now this is interesting to consider in light of how really the church in North America has operated in recent generations. And what I mean by that is is the American church, I think, has been tempted at times, and we're in that time now, but we have been tempted to focus on other things instead of making disciples. And church, it's been to our detriment. It really has. So, So what are some of the things we have been tempted to as the American church, generally speaking? Well, I think as the church, we're often tempted to just simply be another arm of social services, right? Or we're tempted, I don't know, to build bigger buildings. Or we're tempted to start programs or to to launch institutions. Now, don't mishear me. Nothing is wrong with any of these things, provided that they never forget the central mission of the church, which is to make disciples. All of these things whether it be being an arm of social services, uh, uh, building buildings, starting programs, launching institutions, all of these things must serve the purpose of making disciples of Jesus Christ. Everything we do as a church, everything we do as individual people has to be to that end. We are to be disciples who make disciples. Friends, we intentionally replicate ourselves. Okay, I want to pull out my inner Brian for you this morning. I know you often hear his voice on Sunday morning, and he's not here because he's on vacation, so let me give it to you today. And I'm going to do it by contrasting two different types of trees. I'm not a tree guy. He's a tree guy, not me. I could probably tell you the difference between an oak and an elm, but that's about the extent of it. I climbed them when I was a kid, and if the branch was strong enough, it was a good tree to me, right? But let me give you a little Brianism today. Talk about trees. I'm going to contrast two trees with this issue of discipleship that's facing the American church. The first tree I want to talk about is something called a banyan tree. B-A-N-Y-A-N. If you don't know what that is, pull out your phone now. You can Google image it, okay? A banyan tree is this impressive, massive tree that can actually grow up uh, as wide as an acre. Uh, In fact, the branches are so heavy and it's such a massive tree that it often has to to grow a second stump to be able to to hold up the weight of of the branches of of a banyan tree. Now, with that said, nothing grows underneath a banyan tree. So it does not replicate itself. In fact, a banyan tree will only last one generation. Now, it may last 100, 150 years, but it still only lasts one generation. By contrast, a banana tree has the ability to replicate itself. Once a banana tree gets to a certain height, shoots start coming up from within it and around it. And it starts to replicate itself so quickly that it doesn't take long before one banana tree becomes an entire forest of banana trees. I guess what I'm trying to say when it comes to discipleship, we got to go bananas. Huh? <laughs> Was that a Brian joke too? Maybe it's a bad joke. 
Friends, we need to focus our time and attention on replicating ourselves so we don't die out in one generation. You know, a banana tree is really a great illustration for how the early church understood the disciple-making process. You see, 2,000 years ago, when the church was born and was conceived and was born, when it was, when it was coming to fruition, it was in an uh, empire, the Roman Empire, that, that heavily persecuted it. So for the church to be able to, to succeed and to, to, to be able to grow through those heightened years of persecution, it had to learn how to quickly replicate itself. They had to make disciples quickly, nurture that newfound faith in those disciples so they could go out and make new disciples. Friends, we have lost this disciple-making model in the American church. Instead of focusing on relationships, what we have done, some churches just solely, have provided space for big gatherings. And then we wonder why we're not growing. Or we wonder why people aren't spiritually maturing and bringing new people to faith in Jesus. You know, as I said earlier, one thing I love about the Apostle Paul's letter, second letter to Timothy, is this is truly his last will and testament. Paul is bound in a Roman prison, we think in Maritim, awaiting execution for his faith in Jesus Christ. And in those final moments of life, the one thing he had on his mind was pouring into the next generations of leaders in the church through encouragement, through edification, through exhortation, even through challenge. You see, Paul had taken Timothy um, under his wing when he was a young boy on an earlier missionary journey. Uh, Paul saw something in Timothy, and he wanted to kind of fan that, 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 that flame, that spark into a flame, and, and, and make something out of this young boy. And, and, and Timothy grew in the faith. He was nurtured in the faith by Paul to the point where Paul said, you know what, you're ready for, for pastoring a church. So you know where he sent uh, Timothy? To the lion's den. <laughs> He sent him to the church in Ephesus, to pastor the church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is an interesting place 2,000 years ago. Sophisticated city, wealthy city, home of well over 250,000 people, pagan city. It had uh, temples to a variety of gods all over the place, and it even housed one of the ancient wonders of the world. It was the temple to the fertility goddess Artemis. So when you begin to think about the magnitude of this city, the depravity of this city, the, the, the pluralism of this city, and, and, and how to get the gospel to take root in this city, the question that's driving Paul in this moment is, how on earth do you reach such a large city, a city of that magnitude, in an impactful and transformative way? Listen, you don't do it by setting up a church in the middle of the city and inviting people to come to a worship service. That's not how you do it. It takes a lot more subversive strategy to make it happen. Let me be applicable and relevant here. Church of the Lakes, God has placed us in this time outside the city of Canton, Ohio. We consider ourselves to be sophisticated, do we not? Some of us very wealthy. We even have our own temples. No, we don't have a temple to the fertility goddess Artemis, but we have a temple to the god of football, don't we? So, so I asked the same question Paul was asking to the Ephesian church. How on earth are we going to reach our city for the gospel of Jesus Christ in an impactful and transformative way? Well, Paul pl gives a plan uh, to Timothy in 2 Timothy. It's the same plan that I think he offers to us today. Friends, if we're going to reach our city, we have to pour into other people one-on-one -on -one relationships. We're going to have to put in the work of making disciples of Jesus Christ, not only on a macro scale, but on a micro scale, one 
by one. However, I love where the Apostle Paul starts. He says, if you want to be a disciple that knows how to make disciples and to live out that command that Jesus gives us before he ascends to heaven, here's where it starts. Number one, you got to rely on the strength of grace. Verse one, this is where Paul says, he says, you then my child. I, I, I love the familial language that Paul offers Timothy here. It shows that this isn't just two pastors that rub shoulders at a, a pastor's conference at some time along their, their, their careers. No, this was an intimate relationship. Uh, Paul poured into Timothy. He had a deep affection and and adoration for Timothy. Timothy, on the other hand, had a deep respect and honor for the Apostle Paul. So there's there's this close, intimate relationship. And he says to him, You then, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Friends, Paul reminds Timothy that that, that a disciple who multiplies disciples must continually rely on the strength of grace to do it well. Paul doesn't say where you start is with your time, treasures, and talents. He doesn't say where you start is is by leaning into the training that, that you had under my leadership. No, where you start this process is by relying on the strength of grace. Now, this is a pick a bit counterintuitive for the American Christian. And the reason I say that is because we find ourselves couched in a culture that pushes this narrative that you can pull your own self up by your bootstraps. Where we're couched in a culture that pushes this narrative that you can be anything you want if you try as hard as you can. Friends, that's simply not true. If that was true, I would be a running back for the Buffalo Bills in the NFL. It is not true. Listen, on a more serious note, we don't have enough in our own strength to push back the sin in us. No, no, the reason you keep falling to the temptations of those sins in your life is because you're relying on your own strength to deal with them. You don't have it in you to push back the sin inside you, let alone the darkness you see in this world. No, friends, we need, in order to succeed, a deeper source of strength. And that strength is God's grace. We are not to rely on our own self solely for success. Instead, we are to remember that we have access in Christ to the greatest power source there is. Grace. It's a grace that saved us at the cross from sin and death, is it not? Uh, pastor Mike Glenn, he's a, he's a pastor that I, I quote often. He really is a man over the past 15 years that has shaped my preaching voice. And uh, a lot of times in his sermons, he'll be very repetitive with some of the things he says. And one thing he says that I love is that To be a Christian, you have to minister out of the overflow of Christ in you. What does this mean? In the context of our own discipleship, of our own spiritual maturation, what that means is we spend so much time soaking up God's grace, engaging the spiritual disciplines, right? Reading scripture, memorizing scripture, being a person of prayer, fasting, uh, private and corporate worship, so on and so forth. We spend so much time soaking up God's grace doing those things that not only does it fill us up, but it begins to spill out of us. And it is out of the overflow of grace in us that we can actually do our best ministry as a church. Friends, without it, we get tapped out, don't we? We start doing things in our own strength and we get burned out. How many people have been burned out in ministry over the years? It's because you're trying to do it in your own strength instead of out of the overflow of God's grace that is in you. Disciples can only effectively make more disciples when we're doing it out of the overflow of Christ in us, when we're relying on God's grace. That's the first point Paul makes. 
The second, which is really the big meat of, of, of this text in 2 Timothy, is that in order for a disciple to make disciples, we have to develop those disciples, those people, intentionally. That's a huge word to our discipleship ministry team here at Church of Lakes, the, the, the need to do stuff intentionally. Verse 2, which is our, theme, our memory verse for this week, if I can remind you, Paul says this, And what you have heard from me, through many witnesses, now entrust to other faithful people, who then will be able to teach other people as well. Friends, Paul is coaching Timothy here. He, he's telling Timothy, look, if, if the vibrancy of the church is ever going to succeed beyond one generation, then you're going to have to grow and equip other people for ministry. You can't be a banyan tree. you got to be a banana tree. I, since he's not here today, I want to brag a little bit on Pastor Brian. Uh, he wouldn't like it if he was here, but since he's not here, I'm going to do it. Uh, and it's not to score points. It's because it's a sincere statement. Uh, Brian does this really well, actually, in ministry. I can only speak of pastoral ministry, but I've been working with Brian now for over eight years. We're in our ninth year. And I can tell you with full conviction that I would not be the pastor preacher I am today without his teaching, his training, his equipping, his, his encouraging, and yes, even at times his rebuking. I am indebted to him. But beyond pastoral ministry, how many here today have been unleashed in a submission or ministry effort who have grown in their faith in Jesus Christ because of his leadership over the past 28 years? Right? You know, Brian is always looking at the horizon. I and mean, if you, you know this, he's been here 20 years, you know this. He's a visionary. He's always looking at what's next. You see, Brian wants to know Church of the Lakes faith family will continue to be a vibrant church family beyond his years as its pastor. He's always looking at what's next. He's always got his eyes on the horizon. Paul is saying in 2 Timothy, Brian understands this, that we all, not just pastors, but we all have a role and a responsibility to be disciples who make other disciples. I got a great illustration of, of, of discipleship this past week from a guy named Jay Struthers. Jay Struthers is going to be succeeding Mike Glenn as a lead pastor at Brentwood Baptist here in the fall. And uh, he couches discipleship in this conversation around the four-chair process of discipleship. And this is, this is how he explains the four chairs. He says the first chair seats those who are still searching. These people don't yet know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They have not yet acknowledged who Jesus is. And they're still seeking and looking for, for someone or something that is beyond themselves. They know something out there. They're trying to find what that something is. That's chair one. The second chair seats those who, who have come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. They've acknowledged him as their Lord and Savior, but they're very new to the word and the ways of God. And they're wondering how they can go deeper in, in, into this faith journey. The third chair sits those who are known as the workers. My Monday uh, small group calls themselves the worker bees, right? These people are the people who show up faithfully to the work and the ministry of the church day in and day out. Uh, the people in chair three would be equivalent to the disciples early on in Jesus' ministry when he's walking along the seashore of the Sea of Galilee and he calls out to, to Andrew and, and Peter and James and John and says, come and, and follow me. Well, they, they came and followed him for three years. For three years, uh, they, they, they were uh, served alongside him. They were taught by him. They ministered with him. They learned through that relationship with Jesus how to utilize their time, treasures, and talents to advance the kingdom of God in their day and in their time. But ultimately, Jesus' desire was not to simply have them be worker bees, 
but to be fishers of people. And that's the fourth chair. The fourth chair sits disciples who are making new disciples of Jesus Christ. Disciple makers in chair four, like banana trees, are reproducing themselves over and over and over and over to the extent that an entire city gets taken over. Let me ask a question. What chair are you sitting in? What chair are you sitting in? Are you sitting in chair number one? If so, please hear me. Today is the day of salvation. I beckon you to turn from sin and yourself and turn to a Savior named Jesus who went to the cross and died for those sins, who paid the penalty on your behalf, who resurrected from the dead and who now offers you today abundant and new life forever. If you're in chair one, will you be a believer of Jesus Christ? If that is you and you do want to enter into relationship with Christ, see me after service today. I'd love to have that conversation with you and to pray for you. Chair two, are you in chair two? If you're in chair two, that means you're a new believer. You, and you're beginning to feel the Holy Spirit kind of stir within you, calling you into deeper faith and deeper relationship with Christ. So if that's you, I invite you to respond by putting your faith in action. Be a person who's consistently praying every day, morning and night. Open up your scriptures in the afternoon and study and meditate on God's word. Start in the gospel of Mark. It's my favorite gospel. Start there. Join join a mission effort or a mission endeavor. Do something to put your faith in action so you can grow in your knowledge and understanding. If you're in chair three, which I'm guessing is many of you, I encourage you to take a step of faith and, and spend a moment to identify one or two people in your circles that you can invest into. Who are they? Friends, if you're in chair three, please hear the words of Jesus again and fish for people. Be a disciple who replicates what God has taught you into the life of somebody else. Did you hear what Paul says to Timothy? What I have entrusted to you, commit to others as well. In other words, what God has taught me, I have taught you. And now I want you to teach someone else. Think again about this for a moment. The Apostle Paul is in a dungeon in Rome waiting to die for his faith in the first century, and yet we are sitting in a worship center in Canton, Ohio in 2023 listening to these words. How? Well, it's because faithful men and women heeded these words and actually did something. You see, there was a chain of faithful men and women that goes all the way back to the Apostle Paul and then to Jesus. Like somebody shared the gospel with you, right? But don't forget, somebody had to share the gospel with them. But then somebody had to share the gospel with them, them. (laughs) How will you keep the chain going? How will you prove to be faithful to the Lord? The question is not, are you being discipled? The bigger question is, who are you discipling? Third and final point is a short one. We realize this isn't easy work to do, right? This takes a lot of intentionality. It takes some investment of time and energy. Instead, a disciple, here's point three, who makes disciples is one who faithfully endures for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul offers three picture words here. We must be as dedicated as a soldier, as disciplined as an athlete, and as diligent as a farmer. Paul offers good advice. Friends, we need to measure our lives by these illustrations 
in the work God has called us to, are we being as dedicated as a soldier, as disciplined as an athlete, and as diligent as a farmer? And as we do those things, we have to realize there's some things that might need to change about how we structure our lives and days. There's also some things that we just need to build upon what has already been laid before us. We are given this picture of what God wants for us to be and what God wants us to do. Therefore, let us spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Church, our descendants are counting on us. Amen? Can I say that one more time? Let it resonate. Our descendants are counting on us. How well are you being discipled and how well are are you making new disciples of the only one that has the capacity and the ability to save people from their sins and death itself and make them new. Friends, today is the day God has called us to, not tomorrow. Today is the day God has called us to. Be a disciple who makes disciples and let's take over our city with the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Well, Lord God, we want to thank you this morning for the pathway you have set before us. The pathway to be a disciple of yours who has a singular focus to make more disciples. Lord, we know this call is not an easy one, particularly in a society that is becoming ever more polarized than pagan. So God, give us the courage to be faithful, even in difficult moments. Show us how to to rely on the strength of your grace to do this work well. God, teach us to be intentional in the ways we pour ourselves into others. And God, May we also heed the lesson from the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. May we endure faithfully as we remain dedicated, disciplined, and diligent in the work that you have called us to today. We pray this all in the life-giving name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen.